I don't know if you caught that lyric in that song that just talks about simply how Jesus is greater. It says, Jesus is greater. And that is a great uh, segue into our new sermon series that we are starting this weekend. Uh, this weekend, we're beginning a brand new sermon series here at Friends Church. And I love the title of this sermon series because it's this, it's Simply Jesus. Simply Jesus. And that's exactly what this series is all about. Uh, you're going to hear me say this in my message in just a little bit, but we, we need Jesus these days. Now more than ever, we need Jesus these days. And so for the next 10 weeks here at Friends Church, using the book of, of Matthew as our anchor, we're just going to be taking a look at Jesus. We're going to take a look at his ministry, who he is, what he did, and what it looks like to follow after him. And I just know that at the end of this series, if, if we who stand on the stage, if we do our jobs right, then we will come away changed because there's no way that you can encounter Jesus and not be different as a result. And to set the stage for what we're going to take a look at today, I just want to read our, our passage that we're going to be in today. We'll put this on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And this is what God's Word says. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you here this weekend, God, um, we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for the ways that it directs us and it leads us towards your Son, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, God. And as we spend the next several weeks here at Friends Church, Lord, just learning about him, seeing who he is, seeing what he did, and seeing what it looks like to follow after him, God. I pray that we would come every single hearts, every single week with our hearts just ready to hear from you and to see what you would say to us, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would be open to the ways that you, through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, would just want to lead us and guide us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, Father. And so, God, we thank you for the opportunity we get today to start this series, Lord. And I pray that you would speak through me the words that you want to say and that the message that you want to get across would be the one that is received here today. And Father, as we continue on in worship, Lord, I pray that it would come from hearts just filled with thankfulness and gratitude for who you are and for all that you've done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. 
Once again, good morning, everybody. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 3, the passage that I read earlier, Matthew chapter 3. And as you turn there, I have one more announcement for you this weekend. Jen did a great job, but I just have one more thing that I need to share with you. And that is, some of you already know this, but this Wednesday, starting at 7 p.m., I will be launching a new 10-week Bible study through the book of Romans. And there you see the ad for it. And in case you're interested, yes, I am wearing the same exact clothes this weekend that I wore in that. It is, it's my new favorite outfit. So that's, that's what's going on there. But starting this Wednesday at 7 p.m., we're going to do a broad overview, a survey through the book of Romans. And this is for anybody. In fact, you don't even have to show up. All you have to do is go to our website or go to our YouTube channel Wednesday at 7 or anytime after that. You don't have to watch it when it airs live. You can watch it anytime after uh, it begins to air. And let me say something about this upcoming study through the book of Romans, okay? I've been spending several months now actually preparing for this study, studying through the book of Romans, thinking about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to present it. And as I have been preparing for this study, I have really gotten the sense that this is probably the most important thing that I have done in almost 15 years of being a pastor, okay? I really believe that. I'm not exaggerating. This is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing that I've done in my entire life of ministry. And one of the reasons I say that is because we need the Word of God right now, men and women. We need the thoughtful, deep, systematic study right now of God's Word. Uh, you have probably heard us talk about before, and we see it all around us, the, 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 how far the world out there right now is getting away from God. And we see that, right? The world out there right now is getting further and further away from God. But I want to let you know, that's actually not my biggest concern as a pastor. My biggest concern as a pastor is not how far the world out there is getting from God. My biggest concern right now as a pastor is a concern for God's churches, a concern for God's church. I don't know if you know this. But Bible literacy right now among God's people is at an all-time low. Bible illiteracy is at an all-time high. Fewer people are reading their Bibles, fewer people know their Bibles than ever before. And as I have talked about, especially a lot recently, this book right here, this is how we get to know who God is. This is how we know who Jesus is. This is how we know what it's like to follow Him. And so if If people don't know their Bibles, if they're not reading their Bibles, we don't know who God is. And so we need to engage with God's Word. And I really think there are a few books in the Bible that teach us as as much about God and who He is and what He's done for us and what it looks like to follow Jesus than the book of Romans. And so I would encourage you, this is for everybody. You want to go through this by yourself, you can You want to go through this with your family? You can. You want to go through this with your life group? You can. We'll be providing discussion questions to go along with each week's study. So I'd love to see you there this Wednesday at 7 p.m. You all going to be there? Yeah? Okay. Sounds good. Five of you sounds like you're going to be there. That's awesome. Looking forward to, to it. And just so you know, everything I just said about the study through the book of Romans also applies to this brand new sermon series we're starting this week, Simply Jesus. Because what are we doing in this series? We're going to take a look at what God's Word has to say about Jesus and what it looks like to follow Him. And we begin this series on Jesus in a great place to begin a series on Jesus. And that is in Matthew chapter 3 with Jesus' baptism. Most scholars out there will say that Jesus' public ministry really begins with His baptism. And so this is a great place to begin a series on Jesus. But... As is always the case, 
There's far more going on in this passage than I will have time for today. And so in order to get a handle on what we're going to talk about today, what I've done is I've divided this passage we're looking at today, and therefore I've divided my talk here today into a few different sections, okay? And each one of these has a title to go along with it. So if you're someone who likes to take notes, you can write this down even in your Bible. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. We'll put it on the screen. The first thing we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the setting. And you see that in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 3, the setting. Then after that, we're going to talk about the showdown. And you see that in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12, the showdown. And then after that, we're going to talk about the Savior. And you see that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, the Savior. So we're going to talk about the setting, we're going to talk about the showdown, and we are going to talk about the Savior. And if you can't tell, I'm really pleased with myself because I got them all to start with the same letter. You know that I did my homework this past week. Indeed, that took me an entire day just to figure out that or no. It took me about five minutes, but... I felt like a real pastor when I was doing it, okay? The setting, the showdown, and the Savior. And we begin first with the setting. And as we dive into Matthew chapter 3 here, and in fact, not just Matthew chapter 3, as we begin this whole series through the book of of Matthew, through this uh, life of Jesus, uh, there's one really important detail that I need to tell you ahead of time. And and I actually need to remind you of it. I've told it to you before, but it's going to help us immensely, not just in our passage for today, but through this series on Jesus. And what I need to remind you of is what is one of the what was one of the most frustrating things for the Jewish people of the first century in the time of Jesus. If we got the chance to be transported back a, a two thousand years to the time of Jesus, and we went to Jerusalem, let's say, and we found a hundred random Jewish people on the street, and we asked them, "Would you tell me what is your top three most frustrating things that you are facing right now?" I would, I would imagine that 90% of them would include in their, that list of top three the same thing. And they would say this. They would say, what's frustrating us right now? Well, of course, it's the Roman Empire. It is the Roman Empire. And it is the fact that although we Jews, we believe that we believe in the one true God, which was true... And although we believe that this God is the God of the Jewish people, we are his chosen people, we are his special possession, what frustrates us more than anything right now is that for nearly 600 years by the point of Jesus, these Jewish people, God's chosen people, had been the captors of, they had been the subjects of evil, wicked, pagan foreign empires who worshipped evil, wicked, wicked, pagan, foreign gods. The latest incarnation of this was the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire was just one in a list of evil foreign nations who ruled over the Jewish people. And this frustrated them to no end. And by the way, it still frustrates some Christians today, right? One of the most frustrating things for some Christians today is when before every election, we pray and we even fast and we say, God, would you put godly leaders in our position of government? And then after every election, we see some of the people who get appointed to those positions of government. And we scratch our heads, some of us, and go, God, why do you constantly tolerate ungodly people to rule your world? Well, if we struggle with that, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they struggle with that infinitely more. And that is why When almost out of nowhere, this interesting man comes on the scene and he begins to preach this very intriguing message 
That's why many of the Jewish people, they begin to pay attention. Pick it up in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 3, and you'll see what I mean. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. We'll stop right there. And there, for the very first time in our Bibles, we're introduced to this very interesting figure by the name of John the Baptist. And if you don't know anything about him, John the Baptist is indeed one of the more interesting people that we have record of in our Bibles. And we get a taste of that in verse 4 when it talks a little bit about John's lifestyle. And it says that he only wore clothes made of camel's hair. And he only ate insects, locusts it said. And he only drank or ate, I don't quite know how it works, but he only ate wild honey it says. And it is a little interesting if you've, if you've ever seen depictions of John the Baptist in like movies or anything like that. You know that he's usually depicted as the sort of individual that you would not be too thrilled if your daughter brought home on a first date, okay? And I'll just sort of leave it at that. As the father of two daughters myself, I worry about that someday. But that's kind of who he was. And, and definitely, especially this description in verse 4, it piques our curiosity just a little bit. I was reading this passage to someone the other week, and I said, is there anything about this passage that you have questions about? And the only question they really had was, what's the deal with John the Baptist and eating insects and that sort of thing? What's going on here? Well, here's probably the best explanation for why John had this really weird lifestyle, okay? And that is because John was a prophet of God. John was called by God to be his prophet. And we find that as much in verse 3. We're told that John was called by God to announce the coming of Jesus and to prepare the way for the anointed one, for the Messiah. And if you know anything about God's prophets in the Old Testament, you will know that they were often asked by God to do some very strange things. They were asked to dress in weird ways. They were asked to eat weird things. If you don't believe me, read the first couple of chapters of Ezekiel sometimes this week, and you will see some of the odd things that God asked his prophets to do. And at least one of the reasons for that is God needed complete obedience from his prophets, from his spokespeople. God was going to give his prophets very difficult messages for them to preach, and God knew that they needed to be trusted with that. And so God would often ask his prophets to live very eccentric lifestyles to prove to God that they would do whatever he said. And that's what's going on with John the Baptist here. But listen, more important than John's lifestyle or how he dressed or what he ate is the message that John was given to preach. And you see that in verse 2. We're told that he lived in the wilderness and he began preaching this message. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, John would say, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in light of what I just told you a moment ago, can you imagine how that message would have landed on the ears of the average Jewish person of that time? Especially the second part of that message, where John says the kingdom of heaven, or in other places in the Bible, the kingdom of God has come near. Because think about that word kingdom, right? What did that mean? Well, for the average Jewish person at that time, that meant that God was about ready to reestablish his rule and his reign here on this earth. And for the average Jewish person at that time, that could have only meant one thing. And that was that God, that God was going to make Israel its own nation again. 
God was going to restore a, a sovereign nation to Israel, which means that the evil, wicked Roman Empire, they would have been done away with. They would have been overthrown. And this would have been great news to the average Jewish person at this time. No wonder we're told in verse 5 then, that, that, that maybe thousands, if not tens of thousands of people came out from all the surrounding region to, to listen to what John had to say. They liked his message. They were ready for God's kingdom to appear. And it's the second part of this message that John preaches about the kingdom that makes the first part of John's message so interesting. Because just to let you know, John was not the first person, especially in this time period, to preach that God's kingdom was about ready to arrive. I mean, history is literally littered with other false prophets from around this time period who would say God's kingdom is coming near and they would come out and say God is about ready to restore Israel and make its own nation again. So John's not the first person to do this, but here's what's different about all these other prophets. When all these other false prophets got up and said that God's kingdom was about ready to appear, the way that they said that the Jewish people needed to get ready for it is they needed to go home and they needed to grab their weapons. They needed to get their swords ready. Why? Well, think of our own nation's history. How do you overthrow a government that you don't like? How do you start a revolution? A revolution is usually started by training people to be soldiers, right? You, you go to war, you go to battle. And that's what all these other prophets would say. Now contrast that to what John says here. Here John says God's kingdom is about ready to arrive, but he doesn't say, so you need to get your weapons ready. What does John say? He says John, God's kingdom is about ready to arrive, and so you need to get your hearts ready. You need to make sure that your hearts are in the right place. And that is what is caught up in that word repent that John says at the beginning of that message. Repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. And some of you know that Greek word repent, it literally means to change your mind. It means to change your heart. It means to turn from your sin. And it means to turn to God. And that's how John says that God's people needed to prepare for the arrival of God's kingdom. And it's this message of repentance that John preaches that leads directly to this very odd, this very weird ritual that John performs for those who show up. Pick it up again in verse 5. It says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, it says. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so what we read here is we read that when the people come out to visit John, they don't come out to visit John just to you know, sit at his feet and listen to him teach. No, there's an activity that they participate in. And that is this. We're told that they get into the Jordan River which was a river bordering the land of Israel at this time. We're told they confess their sins. They talk about all the things that they did wrong. And then after they confess their sins, what does John do? We're told he dunks them in the water, which is what the word, word baptize really means. It means to immerse. He immerses them in the water. They do something very similar to what we did last week. They get baptized. And by the way, just as an aside here, for those of you who were, who were here last week, how awesome was it to see baptisms again in this church after a year off, right? How incredible was that? Just to give you a little bit of a statistic here, we had 69 people who had registered and signed up who showed up to be baptized last weekend. 
but we had 91 people who left here with their clothes more wet than they came in, and that doesn't include me, okay? Which means we had 22 people who got baptized who weren't expecting it, and that's awesome because that means that God was moving, and that's exactly what we want to see. But let me tell you the best part about last weekend for me, okay? The best part about last weekend for me was the number of younger people who got baptized. I probably baptized 20 people last weekend, 10 of them, at least half of them, were under the age of 15. And we saw that all over the place. In fact, we'll put it on the screens, some of the pictures that were taken on Sunday morning of the services, uh, the people who are getting baptized in those services from our next-gen ministry right before the service. And you see, actually, it gets bigger every single service. Let's put the last one on the screen. That's the number of kids that got baptized here at this church. Isn't that incredible, right? And going back to what I talked about earlier, That gives me hope for the future of God's church here at Friends. Because that's what we need. We need young people to say yes to Jesus, and we need young people to declare that they're going to make their lives about Jesus. And that's exactly what happens in baptism. And I don't know if you think about this whenever you you watch a baptism. It definitely crosses my mind. But one of the things I think about whenever I watch a baptism is whenever we see someone being baptized, we are seeing an event that literally goes back 2,000 years. We are seeing an event that literally goes back to Matthew chapter 3 in our Bible. And it is our familiarity with baptism that makes it difficult to understand what I said just a moment ago. And that is how weird, that is how odd this ceremony was when it first appeared. I don't know if you know this, but we don't exactly know where John got the act of baptism from. It is not something that is mentioned in the Old Testament. And it is not something that the Jewish people seem to be a regular part that they regularly perform during this particular time period. And so there is actually a fierce debate among some scholars throughout the centuries as to where exactly does John get this act of baptism and what was its initial significance. Well, what most scholars believe today is they believe that John borrowed the act of baptism from a ceremony that was performed when Gentiles, when pagans decided that they wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. You see, there are some people in the first century who were born into the Jewish faith because they were born into a Jewish family. But then there were people who were Gentiles who were born into pagan religions. But somehow they got introduced to the one true God and they decided that they wanted to convert to Judaism. Well, what we know from some historical sources at this time is before they could convert to the Jewish religion, what some of the Jewish people would make them do is they'd make them participate in this ceremony. And what they would make them do is they'd make them get into a body of water, they'd make them confess their sins, talk about all the things that they had done wrong, and then after they did that, they would dunk them in the water. They would immerse them in the water. And that was meant to be a symbol of the cleansing of their pagan way of life. And a lot of scholars believe that's where John gets baptism from. But here's what's interesting, okay? According to this passage, who is it that John is baptizing? Who is coming out to John to get baptized? It's not pagans. Who is it? It's Jewish people. God's chosen people are participating in a ceremony that up until that time had only been reserved for pagans. And there's something significant in that. Because by adopting the the, the act of baptism and by applying it to Jewish people, what John is saying in that is he's saying that the Jewish faith of Jesus' day was acting more like a pagan religion than God's, God's religion. 
that the Jewish faith of Jesus' day had lost its way and people needed to return to God. And evidently thousands, if not tens of thousands of Jewish people agreed with, Jesus, or agreed with John here. And there was this desire, we need to come back to God. We need to repent of our sin and we need to return to God. And that's what leads directly to the second part of this passage, the showdown. Because understand, for John to in any way, shape, or form imply that the Jewish faith had lost its way, that would have been seen as a direct attack on a certain group of people. And the group of people who would have seen that as a direct attack are the pastors of that day, the religious leaders of that day. They wouldn't have liked to hear that the Jewish faith had lost its way. And so we're told that they come out to investigate John. They come out to see what he's doing. Beginning of verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. And so what we see here is we see there are two groups of people who have come to investigate John, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And by the way, they likely were not coming to be baptized themselves. Some translations out there suggest that. But the more likely thing that's going on here is they're coming to spy on John. They're coming to see what is going on. And we are going to devote, just so you know, an entire message to the Pharisees and Sadducees because we're going to devote an entire message in this series to the enemies of Jesus, and they were really Jesus' enemies. So I'll give you more information on them later. For our purposes today, all you need to know is that they were the pastors of the day, and they were the seminary professors of the day. They were the ones responsible for, for preserving the Jewish faith and, to te- and teaching it to other people. That's why it's so fascinating to me that when John sees them approaching, listen to what he says to them, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, in other words, you children of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, so don't think you can rely on a religious heritage. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, John goes on to say, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And obviously there's a lot going on there. We could do a whole message on just what John says there. But if I could summarize all that John says there, I'd summarize it in just one word. And that is the word judgment. What John says to the Pharisees, what John says to the Sadducees is, hey, you may be considered the religious leaders of this time, but you actually have no idea who God truly is. You are dead in your sin. And unless you repent and unless you turn to God, you will face God's judgment. You will face God's wrath. And I remind you, these are not pagans that John is talking to. These aren't even the sort of religious people who only show up to the synagogue on the holy days. No, these are the people who seemingly dedicated their lives to following God and to teaching God to other people. And John says, you have no idea who God is. And I can't help but think, men and women, that there is a warning in that for us. You know, I'd imagine maybe some of you were a little bit surprised when I said at the beginning of this message that I'm more concerned about what's going on among the churches, among God's people, than I am in the world out there. Because maybe some of you are thinking, come on, Chris, let's, let's be real here. Yeah, God's church isn't perfect. But, you know, the, the world out there is a mess, and it's far worse. What's going on out there is far worse than anything we see 
going on in the church. And listen, I, I don't deny that. And I absolutely believe that part of our call as the church is to call out the evil we see in the world and to speak against it and to do something about it, to do what we can to bring our, our world in alignment with God and his purposes. At the same time, however, I can't ignore this principle that I see in the Bible. And that is that self-criticism is always to come before criticism of others. And self-examination is always to come before examination of others. And that it's important for God's people to regularly spend time in self-examination because one of the things that we see throughout the Bible is that not everybody who says or thinks they're a part of God's people are actually a part of God's people. Not everybody who says or thinks they're a part of God's kingdom are actually a part of God's kingdom. Not everybody who says or thinks that they're going to go to heaven is actually going to go to heaven. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are a perfect example of this. Again, if we were to transport back 2,000 years and we were to ask 100 random Jewish people on the street, who's a part of God's people? Who do you know for certain that is a part of God's kingdom when it arrives? Every single one of them would have said, well, of course the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course they're going to be a part of God's kingdom. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have said that, yes, of course, of course, of course, we've dedicated our lives to God. Of course we're going to be a part of God's kingdom. Of course we are a part of God's people. But what does John say here? He says, no, they're not. They may think they're on the inside, but they're actually on the outside. They may think that they're going to find themselves as a part of God's kingdom, but actually they're going to be condemned at the end of time. And one of the things that we find throughout the Bible is that there are some people who are going to be shocked when they stand before Jesus at the end of time and they think they're going to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant, but instead they're going to hear from him, depart me, depart from me because I never knew you. And that's why one of the things that the Bible makes clear is that before we go around condemning the world out there, we, God's people, we need to make sure that we don't stand condemned. This is, by the way, a major theme of the book of Romans, to give you a little preview of my upcoming study. Paul does something really interesting in the first couple of chapters of Romans. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul comes down very hard on the world out there. And he talks about how they're dead in their sin, and they're going to face God's wrath and judgment as a result of that. And he even mentions some of the sins that, that he's talking about. And chief among them is their depraved view towards sex and sexuality. And we will talk about that the second week in this study. But then here's what's interesting. After Paul comes down hard on the world out there, Paul turns his attention to God's people. He turns his attention to people like you and me. And he comes down hard on us. Listen to what Paul says. We'll put this on the screen. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says this. He says, You may think that you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And what's Paul saying here? Same before we go around condemning other people. We need to make sure we don't stand condemned. To borrow an illustration that Jesus used, before we go and point out the specks of sawdust in other people's eyes, 
We need to make sure that we don't have planks coming out of our own eyes. And it's in Romans 2 and it's in Matthew 3 that, that we find our call as Christians. We, we are to live differently than the world around us. That's how we know that we are really a part of God's kingdom and put our faith in Jesus. If, if there's been a transformation in our life. And that's what leads me to, to, to God's churches these days. I, I, I'm just not sure, brothers and sisters, we're always living as differently as God has called us to. Some of the same anger we're seeing in the world out there is being manifested in the church these days. Some of the same quickness to judge we're seeing in the world out there is being manifested in God's churches these days. Some of the the, the same divisions we see in the world out there are appearing in some of God's churches these days. I'll, I'll say it, I have never seen the church of God more divided than I have in recent months. And that's a problem. Because as I said, we're called to be different. And I'd like to suggest that I at least know one of the reasons why these things are happening. I think the church has gotten its eyes off of Jesus. We've gotten our eyes off of our Savior. And that's what leads us to the final uh, section of this passage. Right after John confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus shows up. And he shows up for one reason, and that is to be baptized. And John's confused by this. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And so we see that John is confused, and of course John's confused. Remember, baptism is for confession and repentance of sins. John knows that Jesus didn't commit any sins, so why does Jesus need to be baptized? Here's Jesus' response, verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so you see Jesus' response in the middle of verse 15 when he says it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And for full disclosure, just so you know, we we aren't exactly sure what Jesus means by that. There's some debate among scholars as to what exactly Jesus is saying there and why he's saying he needs to be baptized. I think the simplest explanation is the best explanation. I think Jesus knows that there's going to be a movement that surrounds him and his death and his resurrection. And Jesus wants to give his followers a powerful symbol of what happens when we follow after Jesus. And that's what baptism is. If you've been here for a while, you know that I've often described baptism before as sort of like the wedding ceremony of the Christian faith. And that's what I really believe it is. In the same way that you don't need really a wedding ceremony to be married, all you need is a few bucks and a justice of the peace, so you don't need baptism in order to be saved. All you need to do is put your faith in Jesus. But in the same way that a lot of people choose a wedding ceremony because it provides a powerful symbol of their union with their spouse, so baptism provides a powerful symbol of what happens when we become a Christian. When we go in the water and come out of the water, we are both reenacting Jesus' death and his resurrection, which is the center of our faith, but we are also reenacting our own death and resurrection, our death to sin and our resurrection to new life in Jesus, which happens when we become a Christian. So it is a powerful representation of our faith. And I think Jesus knew it would be a lot easier to command his followers to get baptized if he himself got baptized. Jesus is not just our Lord, he's also our example. And so Jesus provides the example for us in getting baptized. That being said, however, there's a sense in which Jesus' baptism is different than ours. And you see that when you see what happens when Jesus gets baptized. Verse 16, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we see here what happens when Jesus gets baptized. And I don't know about you, 
But although my baptism was a very powerful experience, the heavens did not open when I come out, came out of the water, and not even so much as a pigeon landed on my shoulder when I came out of the water, let alone a dove in the form of the Holy Spirit or vice versa, however you say it. So obviously there's something different going on with Jesus' baptism. And there is. One scholar I, I read this past week, he described Jesus' baptism as sort of like his coronation here on this earth. And there's something to be said about that. Jesus' baptism was God's opportunity to show the world, this is my son, he's the one who's going to bring the kingdom, and so you need to pay attention to him. This is my son, he's going to bring the kingdom, and so you need to pay attention to him. And that's what leads us directly to the, the application for this particular message. So far in this message, I've shared with you the setting, I've shared with you the showdown, I've shared with you the Savior. Well, there's one more thing that I need to share with you, and that is the significance. Yes, another S word. I deserve overtime for this message, don't I? The significance. What in the world does this mean for us? Well, I've already sort of touched upon this, but I want to get very personal with you, okay? If I'm reading this passage correctly, and I think I am, one of the lessons that comes out of this passage is that before I go around calling out the world out there, and honestly, before I go around calling out the church, there's one individual that I need to call out first. And who do you think that is? You're right. It's my wife, Tanya. No, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. I, I need to call out myself, okay? I need to call out myself. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Like it has been for many of you, the past 12 months have been filled with some difficulties for me. Not as bad as some of you have been through, and I know that, but I've, I've had my own share of difficulties over the past 12 months. But do you know what the worst part of the past 12 months has been for me personally? The worst part of the past 12 months has not been COVID and the quarantine. It hasn't been what's going on in our political world right now. It hasn't been some of the other frustrations that I have experienced in the past 12 months. No, the worst part of the past 12 months for me personally has been what all of those difficulties has revealed about what's in my heart. And it's been what all those difficulties have revealed about the numerous planks that I have had in my eye that I did not even realize until recently. You know, as your pastor, I'm, I'm called to be an example to all of you. And that's why I love, I would love it if I could stand up here and say, you know, I responded perfectly to everything we went through in the past 12 months. And I, I exemplified nothing but love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. But if I said that to you, I would also have to add the list of, of, of uh, the sin of lying to my list of sins. And I don't want to add another sin to my list, okay? Because here's the reality. In the past 12 months, I've seen more unrighteous anger in my heart than probably ever before. In the past 12 months, I've seen more bitterness in my heart than ever before. In the past 12 months, I've seen more of a quickness to judge than I ever have before. And there's been a lot of stuff in my heart that I haven't liked. And I know is not of God. And one of the things that this passage tells me is before I go around talking about how other people need to make sure that their heart is in the right place, I need to make sure my heart's in the right place. 
As I was working on this message this past week, there was a song that came to my mind, and it's sort of an interesting song. But it's Michael Jackson's song, Man in the Mirror. And I can already hear some of the emails being written as we speak. (laughs) But whatever you think about him as a person, um, just listen to the chorus of this song. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. And you are very welcome for getting that song stuck in your head for the rest of today. But I think there's truth in that. You know, it's human nature to go around pointing our fingers at everybody else and to say they're the problem and they're the problem and you're the problem and they're the problem and so on. But one of the things that we learn from this passage is before we point our fingers at other people, we need to point our fingers at ourselves. Maybe I'm the problem. And and before we accuse others of, of not having their hearts in the right place, we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. That they're aligned with God. And I don't think my heart always has been over the past year. And by the way, there is only one who can get your heart in the right place, and it's not yourself, it's Jesus. And more than anything else in the past 12 months, I think that's what I got away from a little bit at times. I don't think my fi- I fixed my eyes on Jesus enough. I fixed my eyes on the news media, I fixed my eyes on politicians, I fixed my eyes on my circumstances, I fixed my eyes on myself, but I don't think I fixed my eyes on Jesus enough. And I've been alive long enough to know that nothing good happens when you take your eyes off of Jesus. And that's why as I was working on this message, I really realized I need to get back to Jesus. And I need to get back to his word. And I wonder if some of you would want to join with me in that. What would it look like if for the next 10 weeks of this series, what would it look like if this became our focus over these 10 weeks? What would it look like to turn off the TV or at the very least to turn it down? What would it look like to take a break from social media? What would it look like to resist the urge to respond to every inflammatory comment that comes our way or inflammatory article that comes our way and to, and to practice self-control and to guard our words and to guard our actions and rather than be consumed by the toxicity that is out there, we became consumed by God and His Word. Rather than be filled by all the junk that's out there, we got filled by Jesus and we got filled by His Holy Spirit. How different do you think we would be at the end of 10 weeks if we did that. I know that that is what my heart is longing for. And maybe some of your hearts are longing for that too. Maybe it's time that some of us would admit that we need to hit a great big giant reset button and get back to what's important and get back to what matters. And that's what leads us to our close here. In this series, we want to provide opportunities for you during our services to respond in a way that, we, that maybe you feel God is leading you to. And we have a few different options here at the end of this service. One, we're going to have another song of worship. And so if you want to stay in your seats and praise God and, 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 and just have a heart-to-heart with God on your own, that's great. But we also have a couple other things available. One, if, if you feel like you want prayer right now, Maybe you want to confess something or maybe you just want to be prayed over for some reason. 
But we're going to have people. They're stationed at the signs you see around the worship center. And then there are also going to be some people up front at these rugs. And if you want to come forward and you want to receive prayer, you can. And listen, I know it's awkward to do that in front of other people. But you need to realize we're family here. And we would love as our, your brothers and sisters in Christ to minister to you in this time. And so if you're feeling any urge towards that, we'd encourage you. Come and receive prayer. And then the final thing that we have is if you want to take communion in this time, just by yourself, you can do that. Be reminded of God's grace. Be reminded of his presence through his son, Jesus Christ. We have some carts around the worship center. And they have the communion elements on it. And you can take that during this time as well. But for, this is for you to respond in the way that God leads you to respond. But before we head into that time, let, let's just bow our heads right now in a word of prayer. And Father God, as, as we close here, God, I pray that um, the truthfulness and the sincerity of what I said at the end of the message, Father, that that would, that would come across, God. Father, I, I confess before you and I confess before my brothers and sisters in Christ, God, that um, I, I have gotten my eyes off of Jesus at some points over this past year. And I've seen the fruit of that and, and it hasn't been great, God. And Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God who, when we decide that we want to come back to you, God, you don't shun us, you don't shame us, you don't, uh, you don't withhold from us, but God, like the father in the story of the prodigal son, you, you actually run out to greet us. And you say to us, it is so good to see you again. And God, I pray that that truth would sink deep right now in the hearts of, of people who especially need to hear that right now. God, maybe there are some among us who would admit the same thing that I confess, God, that, yeah, I've gotten away from, from Jesus. And maybe they're afraid to come back because they're afraid that, that you're going you're gonna to shun them, you're going to shame them, God. And would you let them know right now that that's not the case? And that, God, you, you are, in a sense, standing right now with open arms. And the second we turn to you, you have a smile on your face, and you just say, it's so good to see you, Lord. And God, as we enter into this final time here of worship, I, I pray that your grace and your mercy, I pray that your love would just be felt in this place, God. I pray that hearts would be healed during this time, God. I pray that we would just have a genuine encounter with you, who you are, what you want for us, Father, would just become so clear during this time. And we would just worship you from just hearts of, of love, for who you are and what you have done for us, God. Have your way in this place, Lord. It is yours. We give it to you again, God. And we thank you for the work that you're going to do in this time, Lord. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this all for the sake of and all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.